Christianity today in many places does not resemble what the Bible teaches. The sacrificial, selfless, consuming Christianity that it should be has been replaced with something that is convenient and comfortable. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich reminds us of the Jesus of the cross so that we keep Christianity what it was intended to be. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Get to Know the Cross, from the book of John, chapter 12. Well, it is good to be in the Lord's house with you guys this morning as we gather around His Word and dive in and see what He has to say to us. As I said, we are going to be in the book of John this morning, chapter 12, and we will be <clears throat> reading verses 20 through 32. 20 through 32. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hours come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and, be, and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servants be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. <clears throat> now, the, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we thank you for this opportunity to, to gather around your word, to praise you, to worship you, to lift your name in song. And Lord, we thank you now as we go into the, uh, to the sermon, Lord, we just ask that you continue to open our hearts and minds to you and let us be receptive to whatever it is that you want us to take away from these words this morning. Lord, let your word resonate within us in such a way that we meditate on it and walk through the week with these words echoing in our hearts that we might be shaped and formed by them that we might become the servants that you wish us to be and lord i know i'm not worthy to be the one to deliver these words but i just ask that you take me and use me as only you can empty me of anything that can in any way interfere with the message selfishness pride destruction whatever or distraction whatever it might be lord just take it all away Take it away and fill me with your spirit that I might only speak the words that you've laid upon my heart. And Lord, as a church, help us to continue to strive forward, to reach out to the community around us, that we might fulfill the role for which you have created us, that we might always be an example of your love and your peace and address any needs that we might see, physical or spiritual. And Lord, as individuals, let us go through our day seeking opportunities to share your gospel with anybody we come in contact with in this lost and dying world that we live in. And Lord, we ask that you forgive us of the times that we've sinned against you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This morning we're reading about uh, Jesus' final discourse uh, to the people prior to his crucifixion that is recorded in the book of John. This is the, the last time he addresses the people uh, that is in this particular gospel. And one of the things we notice in previous verses is, is how there were a group of Greeks who had come to worship during the Passover feast and who desired to meet with Jesus. Now this was interesting because the holiday was a Jewish one, and yet we see Greeks who were Gentiles uh, gathering to celebrate it. Now some uh, felt like these Jews were probably, or these Greeks were probably Jewish proselytes, and uh, they very well may have been, but it makes an interesting reference because now we see both at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, or his life actually, with Gentiles that are in pursuit of the Savior. At his birth, it was the wise men from the east, and here near the end, we see it was the Greeks. So, uh, interestingly enough, we see even the Gentiles were seeking, or sought, came to Jesus, were drawn to Jesus in both ends of his life. <clears throat> now, um, how many of these that sought Jesus felt like he was perhaps... Uh, the one that was going to set up his kingdom and overthrow the Romans and, and throw them out uh, and overpower them. Um, and it's hard to say. But the words of Daniel likely bounced around in their heads of the one who would set up their worldwide kingdom without end. So we wonder now if that was what was resonating in their minds at the time. And when you think about it, many of his closest disciples really didn't quite get what was going on right up to the point where he was arrested and crucified. Because I th think it's fairly obvious that if they understood completely what Jesus had told them, what Jesus had taught them, and had completely sold their hearts over to that, their response to those things would have been very different than running and hiding. We even see some confusion right up to the point where he reveals himself after the resurrection. In fact, his opening statement of this particular discourse probably set some hearts to beating a little faster in the sense where he stated that his hour had come. You imagine that in their minds they probably were thinking, oh, does this mean he's going to set up his kingdom? He's going to throw the Romans out? So up to this point in his teaching also, Jesus had always made reference to his hour as if it were something that were down the road. And yet, in this particular discourse, we see him state that his hour had come, and it was now. That his time had come. Now we also see him to refer to it in the present tense. The moment for which he had come was now waiting at the door. And thus, our verses this morning point us to what is probably the single most important event in history of mankind and the tool by which this event came about. And Jesus at this point would also discuss the very apex of his ministry with them in a very, very personal way. Do you catch that? He had a very personal statement in the verses that we read this morning. Up until this point, he really hadn't shared uh, his feelings or emotions regarding his death on the cross with, that, with anybody outside of his perhaps closest disciples. But we see him begin an analogy that expresses an incredibly important truth on a couple of levels. He uses a, a grain of wheat as an analogy to express something that leads us right into 
what our first point is this morning. And something that we, is very important that we take away from these verses this morning. And the first thing we want to draw out of this is that we need to know the Jesus of the cross. Now, there are many different Jesuses in this world that people identify with. And in a lot of cases, it's not even the Jesus of the Bible. But even while adhering to truths of Scripture, there are different pictures of Jesus that people have as what is the predominant picture they carry around with them in their minds. Now, let's be clear about something here. Unless we see Jesus in light of what He did at Calvary, we're going to miss the real Jesus. Let me say that again. Unless we see Jesus in the light of what He did at Calvary, we're going to miss the real Jesus. Many people think that they know Jesus because they're familiar with all the stories. They're familiar with His history. They're familiar with the gospel stories. They're familiar with all the events of His life. But all they see when they look at that necessarily could be just a historical Jesus. Just the Jesus that happened to live at a certain period of time in history. They will never see the real Jesus unless they fully comprehend His death, resurrection, and His work on the cross. Until you see Him as Savior and Lord and recognize the magnitude of what happened on Golgotha, you'll miss the real Jesus. This is what Paul alluded to in 1 Corinthians 2.2 where he said, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul thought it important enough to include that little tidbit of qualification when he made this statement when he was talking to the church at Corinth and pointing out the very focus of his existence. That's why it's so crucial as a preacher that we don't miss the opportunity to preach the events of the cross. When you think about it, the cross is really kind of the focal point of Christianity. And we can't separate the story of Jesus from any other aspect of His ministry. Paul was not implying by this statement, though, that he doesn't care about the other parts of Christ's ministry in any aspect of Christianity, the person of God the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit, and so on. He wasn't saying that, that it doesn't matter. He wasn't saying, I don't care about anything else but Jesus on the cross. That was not Paul's intent there. But he was making an emphasis. He was pointing to the fact that if they remembered nothing else about Jesus' life and His time on earth, they need to remember the cross. But there is a tremendous danger in approaching the gospel from just purely in thought standpoint, just from in your head, just knowing facts. We need to be careful about that. When it comes to the gospel, yeah, we, we need to learn in our heads what Jesus has done for us. We certainly need to study and understand the events in the gospels and all that led up to Jesus' sacrifice that he made on the cross. But more importantly, we need to learn this deep down in our hearts. Not just in our heads. We need to absorb it. We need to take it in. We need it to become a part of the fiber of our being. 
It needs to become very, very real to us. Not just a story, but something that when we hear about it, strikes us to the very core, personally, and uniquely attached to our own experience with the risen Lord. Jonathan Edwards, a preacher from the 1700s, once used this as illustration to make a point. Uh, he, and he was talking about honey to try to rec or identify people with what we were alluding to when we say you have to experience Jesus Christ rather than just know about it and read about it. He said, your mind can know that honey is sweet. People can tell you that it's sweet. You've read books about it, etc. But if you haven't actually tasted it, you know with your head but not with your heart. When you actually taste it, you experience it for yourself. You know it in a full way, and you can know it in your heart. Now don't be confused. When I say know it in your heart, I'm not saying just from an emotional standpoint. That's not what I'm talking about here. Many a person has been caught up in the emotions of the moment and made a profession, but shortly thereafter fell away because it was not a genuine profession of faith. It was something that made them move in the moment, but there really wasn't a change down here in their heart. A change in a person's heart will make an unmistakable change in that person as a whole. But to truly embrace those truths, your, your heart has clear proof. You know, when, I say, when you say things like, I know God loves me, but I don't really like who I am. Or, I know God wants me to do this, or I, want, I know He wants me to do that, but I, I just don't think I want to do it. We're stating truths about God from our head and using that knowledge, but there is truly a lack of understanding in our hearts when we view it that way. If we really truly knew that God loved us and made us uniquely who we are, then we would appreciate that in how we look at ourselves. God's love would be so real to us that we would see ourselves as He sees us. Through His Son. As an adopted child. If we knew God truly wanted us to do something, we would joyfully go about those things knowing that we have, through our obedience, magnified Him. Glorified Him. We wouldn't put our own desires ahead of that. To experience Jesus is to understand the infinite passion that He has for us. The ones He went to the cross for. It's to realize the depths of His mercy as compared to our own depravity. And that's a pretty drastic comparison. It is to come to grips with the abundance of His grace in the light of our overall unworthiness. When you consider how we stand at opposite ends of the spectrum, we're over here, God is over here when it comes to our righteousness and our holiness, rebellious, sinful, self-absorbed mankind, and over here you have a perfect, sinless, pure, unconditional love that Jesus reached across that insurmountable gap to draw us to Him when that becomes real to you, then you begin to understand and recognize and know truly the Jesus of the cross with all your heart. 
And those who truly come to Christ love Him above all else. We come to a point when we embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord where we put Him above all. The sinful desires, our self-righteousness, all relationships, all self-will. He is number one. And in doing so, the road that we travel in this life becomes all about Him and not about us. The second thing we need to take away from this is that we need to endure the pathway of the cross. Now, this particular point may seem to imply that we walk and experience this life as one of negativity and unpleasantness. But to put this in perspective, to kind of put it in a framework that what I'm talking about, let's take a look at what Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, and that's key, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In these verses, we see some very key points that I want to start peeling back the layers on and taking a look at here. First, the word endured here in verse 2 literally means to remain under. And this is an interesting wording because it implies that we make no effort to get out from whatever the burden is. In this case, it was a cross. Now couple that with the comment that Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. What exactly does that expression mean? The joy that was set before him. This expression points to his motivation for what he was doing. And the motivation pointed to a future joy once he came out on the other side of what he had to endure in order to accomplish his ultimate goal. And what was it that motivated him so much to endure the pain, the agony, the suffering of the cross? It was the glory that he would receive from you and me forever with him and the Father having a relationship in heaven for all eternity. This is what motivated Jesus. His love for us and a desire to provide the means by which this would be possible. But let's flip that around for a second, because you'll note we have a part in this verse as well. It's not just one-sided. Paul tells us that, let us run with patience. Now, there's that word that so many of us just seem to dread. Patience. It says, let us run with patience. Well, take heart, because here patience is defined as cheerful endurance. Cheerful endurance. What are we to run our race with, with cheerful endurance? And what race is this that Paul is talking about? Where's Paul going with this? Our Christian walk. Living and loving our lives in service to God. This is the race that Paul is referencing here. Putting aside all the worldly and fleshly things that would pull us away from this race and focusing on the one who set for us the example of joyful obedience to our faith. This is an important aspect of our beliefs. You know, a lot of people kind of get zeroed in and 
They get focused on and dwell simply on the, the affection and love that we feel for Jesus and what He has done for us. And while it is certainly, absolutely should elicit a response like that from us, understand something here. True salvation is not only affection, but it is also direction. In other words, it's living for Jesus, living our faith along the path that God has given us. It's not just walking around dwelling on the fact that Christ loves us so much, which He does, certainly, but there's more to it than that. It's living a life glorifying Him. It's living a life for Him, fulfilling the role that He has for us. And we know that this will involve times where there are seemingly things going well and times where things not so much. We know that there are going to be times of difficulty. Jesus has warned us of such. And keeping in mind the command of Jesus to take up our cross and follow, we know that there's going to be sacrifice involved as well. We know that he's saying that you are going to have to offer yourself a living sacrifice, as Paul put it, for the sake of Christ, if we are going to live in our fullest sense for him. It involves us dying to ourselves so that others might be saved. Is that not worth that cost when you think about it? Is it not worth denying ourselves just, a, uh, just even a little bit? so that others might know the glory of God and understand the beauty of salvation that He offers? Would you not sacrifice so that others might live? Jesus laid His life down that we might be lifted up. So we should follow suit. We should do the very same thing, laying down or dying to self, our lives so that others might be saved. And this is where Jesus' analogy really takes root, if you'll excuse the pun. He, he speaks of how a corn of wheat must fall to the ground and die in order to be productive. In other words, in order to bear fruit. It's got to fall down to the ground. We've got to bury a seed before it will grow. While he was most certainly pointing forward and stating this to his forthcoming death and resurrection, a similar concept applies to us as well. If we aren't willing to die to ourselves, we are going to be of very little use to the kingdom unless we take this concept to heart. Because all our priorities will always have some kind of selfish sway to them. In other words, all of our priorities will always have something to do with what we gain out of it, what we get from it. What pleasure or desires might be fulfilled in it for us. This is why Jesus immediately followed up his analogy to a corn of wheat with the statement clearly directed at his disciples in clearer terms. He told them a person who holds tight to the life that he loves, a life of selfishness, a life of greed, a life of pleasure, is a life that will be lost. But when that person hates this is a comparative statement. This is not pure hatred. His life, he is willing to let it go. If he's willing to let it die, so to speak, that life will ultimately bear much more fruit. And that will be surrendered to the service of Jesus Christ. And we see this reoccurring theme all throughout Scripture. That we can only find life if we lose this life. 
if we are willing to let go of what we have in this life, we will find life abundant. It's a life that glorifies God and a life that is used to make Him known. How could we not possibly enjoy a life that is used bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? Knowing that we are being used by the King of Kings to make Him known, to make disciples. How could one not love a life like that? And then the last piece that we draw from this is we need to benefit from the work of the cross. We need to benefit from the work of the cross. Now, let us not live our lives just understanding, but benefiting from this. Above all else, when we find ourselves with a true heart-level acceptance of the atoning death and subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can live our lives with such tremendous blessing and hope. Because with that comes a relationship with God the Father. And what does that allow us? What do we benefit? How do we gain from that? For starters, we see in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The power of God. What an incredible thought. Now I know this doesn't mean we go around flexing supernatural powers and, uh, to accommodate our every women desire, but what it does remind us is that when we get saved, we get set on a course of servanthood with some very specific tasking. And we can confidently step out in obedience knowing that any time that we are acting in obedience to the commands of God, we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we are acting in obedience to God, when we are fulfilling His will and His purposes, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to aid us in that. And when you think about that, that's a pretty good thing. Because we can't do anything worthwhile outside the will of God, really. In addition to that, we know that in this life as a believer, we do not ever walk alone. In a world where so many have seemingly turned against those of the faith, it's easy to, to feel like we're kind of alone in our journey. We kind of are isolated from everybody. Yes, we have the opportunity to fellowship with other believers, but for the most of the week, we are apart from one another. But the fight against a world that despises who we live for is not one to fear. We're going to see in the news all kinds of things happening that encroach upon more and more of our right to practice our faith. That more and more demonize us, so to speak, make us the bad guy, because we hold to the truths of Scripture. And it's not going to get any better. But what we do know from this is that there's nothing to be afraid of in all of this. Paul reminded us of this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, where he says, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. We don't need to fear what man can do. Nothing will happen to us that God does not allow. And we can stand for the Lord confidently and boldly, knowing the fight is not ours, it is His, and that He has already won this battle. Ultimately, He comes out victorious. 
But we also know the work of the cross comes with a special membership for those who believe. And that membership comes through our adoption into the very family of God. Galatians 3.26 For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And not just children, but the Most High God, mind you. Joint heirs with Christ, scriptures say. That is an awesome concept when you think about it. To say you've been adopted into a royal family is, enough, is, is amazing enough, but to be an heir as well? But that doesn't put a little pep in your step. I don't know what's going to. To know that we are loved by our Heavenly Father to such a great extent is nothing short of amazing. And there are many other benefits that come from the work of the cross, but indisputably the most amazing, the most crucial, the most utterly astounding is that it brings about it, the forgiveness of our sins. We are no longer bound by the chains of sin. No more do we have to walk through life wondering the course of life that we are following, if there's going to be enough to get us into heaven. If we are going to make some hidden criteria of divine acceptance, we know because of that, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that we are forgiven. 1 John 1.9 tells us, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And follow on with that with Isaiah 43.25 where it says, I, even I, am He that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. How often do we beat ourselves up over things that we've already sought forgiveness of God for? We keep dredging them up, but God has, has put them aside forever. We go to God and ask for forgiveness. He's done with it. If we are sincere in our hearts and seek and repent of those sins, then God puts them away, and He does not bring them back up. He will remember them no more. Even when we bring them to mind and want to beat ourselves up about them, God looks at us and says, what are you doing? Why do you constantly want to try to remember that which I have forgotten? That is an incredible blessing. But even more than that, as, I, as if it couldn't get any better, we know that those who call Jesus Savior and Lord will have life everlasting. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ, for Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the Jesus of the cross brings about the hope that only He can give. We, don't long, long, we no longer live under the death sentence of sin where we wander through this life with no hope after death, where well, we wander through this life fearing that event that will take us out of this world. Arguably, the greatest benefit that those who believe have is life eternal, unimaginable peace, rest, and glorious service in the very presence of our Lord and Creator. You see, this is the Jesus of the cross that we need to come to know. This is the Jesus 
that we need to embrace and to take in deep into our hearts so that we might live an entire life dedicated to His purposes and His glory. But it only happens when we are willing to fall on our faces before God and understand that we are a wretched sinner. That we have no capability, no possibility of reconciling ourselves to God in our own works. No matter how good you think you are. You could be the most generous, most just pouring blessings out on other people all you want, all day long. But it's not enough. Because you can never measure up. But Jesus has done the work that allows us to be acceptable to God. Because when God the Father looks at us, He doesn't see our wretched, disgusting, gross righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus imputed upon us. But only if you accept Him as your Lord and Savior. All we have to do, the Bible says, is confess our sins before God. Recognize we are a sinner without hope. And believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again three days later. And you too can be saved. This is the Jesus of the cross. Do you know him? Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne, once again we thank you for all that you have done for us, Lord. We thank you for your word, first of all, and the truths that it holds for us to enlighten us, to help us to grow in the knowledge of you and who you are. And in doing so, Lord, help us to understand who we are. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for all the promises and all that it holds for us. And Lord, we thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he has done on our behalf. Lord, we know we are not worthy, deserving, or in any way, shape, or form, you know, deserving of such a thing, Lord, but we just thank you so much that you saw fit to provide a means for us to reconcile to you despite our sinful beings, despite our sinful natures. And Lord, we just ask that you continue to impart upon us your Holy Spirit, burden us with whatever it is that you want us to do, Lord, to guide us, to direct us, to lead us, to convict us, that we might live lives that are glorifying and honoring to you. And Lord, it's my desire if there's anybody at the sound of my voice or anybody that's here today that has not come to know you as Lord and Savior, may this be the day they do so that you draw them to you in such a way that they cannot help but fall on their faces before you and give their lives to you. And Lord, we love you and praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and BeyondPod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space-Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await His joyful return.
Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.